So if you would, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. And I do need to say, I'm actually remembering, children can be dismissed for Children's Church. <laughs> uh, I, 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 every week I get a note, please remember to say that, and I never remember to say it. Um, so yes, children, you are dismissed for Children's Church. It's, it's directly back in the toddler's room if you're not there already. Uh, for the rest of us, uh, Luke chapter 2 is where we are at. We've been here for a few weeks. We've been talking about reasons to marvel uh, during this Christmas time. We've been talking about those reasons from Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and, and read those verses for us once again this morning. Luke chapter 2. Verses 21 through 40. And picking it up in verse 21, it says, At the end of eight days when he was circumcised, that's, that's baby Jesus, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel, before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, so that's 33 days later, uh, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And recall with me that that is the, the poor man's offering. But we see there how Mary and Joseph are faithful to the law, their obedience. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, all nations, all ethnicities, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And like any of us, his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. And remember the textual note I mentioned last week? It could be translated differently. It could be actually saying uh, not that she was 84 years old, but that she had been a widow for 84 years, so she could be well into her hundreds. Uh, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. 
This is the reading of God's good and perfect word. All God's people say, Amen. Amen. As we come upon this, this Christmas season, I would just ask you, what are your expectations? What are your expectations? And I will say to you that if your expectations for Christmas are gifts and time with family, that, that as nice as those things are, gifts and time with family, it, but if those are your expectations for Christmas, your expectations are way too low. If your expectations for Christmas is family and gifts, your expectations are not where they should be. Christmas is about the celebration of Christ and his salvation. Christmas is about marveling, being astonished, and in awe and wonder at what God has done through the promised Messiah, uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I've been trying to encourage you for, for the last couple of weeks that nothing should stop you and nothing should stop me from being full of wonder and awe this Christmas. And if there's something that, that's on your mind right now that in some way is inhibiting you or slowing you down or making you unable uh, to, to be full of awe and wonder this Christmas, then again, you need to get your expectations off of that. You need to get it on Christ. Focus on Christ. Remember the, the Christmas account found in the Bible is in the midst of a very dark time, a fearful time, a dangerous time, nationally and spiritually. And Jesus has been born and laid in a feeding trough, and Mary and Joseph are very poor. And remember, Luke doesn't record this, but remember from Matthew that uh, shortly after Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph and the baby have to flee to Egypt because this murderous man named Herod is on a rage, right? And slaughters infants. It's a dark time, a dark time. Yet the angels burst on the scene saying what? Glory to God in the what? In the highest, superlative, the highest. Mary and Joseph are filled with awe and wonder as we saw in our text. Simeon and Anna give praise to God and Simeon is, is quickly becoming one of my Christmas heroes. He's, he's an amazing guy. Uh, very thankful for him and his testimony in scripture. But what we see here above all else, no matter how bad, that we should be able to adore God and his son, Jesus Christ. So again, if your expectations are anything other than marveling in Christ this Christmas season, then your expectations need to change. They are far too low. And this morning, I'm gonna give you three more reasons why you should marvel at the Christ. I've given you four already, right, over the last couple weeks. This morning I have three more to share with you. And the first reason to marvel this morning as we look at this text is, is the everyone gospel. That the gospel, salvation, the good news, it's for everyone. It's for everyone. And we see that as we look in verse 30. Where Simeon, if you can picture him, He's holding baby Jesus in his hands and says, My eyes have seen your salvation. Now notice what he says, verse 31, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Then he gets specific in verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, that's anyone who's not a Jew, and for glory to your people Israel. So notice that this everyone gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, is prepared. 
right? That's what it says in verse 31, that you have prepared. God is always prepared. (laughs) That's great news. God is always prepared. His preparations are always perfect because God knows everything. Salvation through Christ is not plan C or D or E. That's, it's, that's never been the case. It was not a last-minute audible. Uh, it's not a last-minute gift idea that we sometimes have for our, our loved ones. Uh, last night, Dave asked, how many of you still have Christmas shopping to do? And apparently only like three or four people raised their hand and said they're done, right? That's a lot of people who apparently have some last-minute <laughs> Christmas shopping to do. Uh, God's not like that. God's not last-minute. Uh, Jesus' birth and life, and death, and resurrection, and everything else was in accordance with what God had prepared, with what God had designed beforehand uh, through the four omnis, right? God is omnipotent. Uh, God is omniscient. Uh, God is omnisapient. And also God is omnibenevolent. And by omnipotent, I mean God is all-powerful. By omniscient, I mean God is all-knowing. By omnisapience, I mean God is all wise. And by omnibenevolence, I mean God is all love. And those things combined, those four attributes of God, and there's many more we can mention, but those four attributes combined tell us that God is always prepared and that God always does the best possible thing in the best possible way. Think about this. If, think about if, if God was omnipotent, if God was all-powerful, but not all-benevolent not all loving. That's scary to think about, isn't it? If he had all this power, but didn't wield it in love. Or imagine if, if God was just omnisapient, which is to say he's all wise, he knows the best course of action, but he's not omnipotent. If he wasn't all powerful, he might know the best course of action, but he doesn't have the power to make it happen. It's, it's, it's very rewarding to take some time to meditate on those four attributes and think how they work through and, and just what God is like for us. Just, just very, very, very encouraging. So what we see from that is because God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-loving, we can know, again, that God does everything in the best possible way at the best possible time. And that alone is a reason to be full of praise and awe and wonder of his name uh, this morning. No matter what no matter the situation, you can trust God. You can love him and know that he is at work for his glory and your good. This is especially true when it comes to salvation. Our salvation was prepared beforehand. This is why in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus is referred to as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And why we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, uh, we read, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now listen to what it says. This Christ, this Messiah, he was foreknown or foreloved before the foundation of the world. Pretty clear, huh? And that's just three verses. I could, I could throw a lot more at you to show how salvation was prepared. 
that long before Adam was created, long before Eve was tempted and deceived, long before sin entered the picture and destroyed God's good and perfect creation, God planned the redemption of sinners through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross is plan A. It always was, always will be his one and only plan. And that plan has never faltered, it's never wavered, it's never been negotiated. God is never up in heaven wringing his hands, worrying, what am I going to do now? He's never losing sleep. He never needs to take a minute. He never has any of those issues. He's never trying to sort out or rack his brain, what do I do? But from the beginning of time, in fact, before there even was time, in eternity past to eternity future, the salvation plan was prepared. Salvation is not something we conjured up. It's not something we can accomplish in our own strength. It's prepared in eternity past. Again, that's reason to marvel and to praise him and to exalt him. Because that's incredible to think about. Because if you think about that, if he's omniscient, he knows all things. He knew how sinful we are. He knew the sinful course of action we would take. He knows the sinful thoughts in our minds, as it says later in our text. He knew all of that. And yet, he prepared our salvation through his son. That's amazing love. That's amazing love. And the wonder only increases when when we see that in light of God's rich grace, the salvation was prepared, according to verse 31, in the presence of all peoples, which is to say this salvation is for all tongues, all tribes, all ethnicities, all nationalities. Jesus is not simply the consolation of Israel. He is the consolation of the world. And Luke specifically explains how that is so in those verses. Again, verse 32, Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Luke loves to kind of allude to or quote from Isaiah. I wonder if you've picked that up. Each week now, I didn't realize this until I've been digging through it, how much he references Luke. I noticed that big time last week and again uh, this week as I studied. So Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, which many people call the fifth gospel, uh, but Isaiah has a big emphasis on light and how the Messiah will be light. And so Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep, deep darkness, <clears throat> on them has light shone. That's talking about the Messiah, and that's tying into our verse, verse 32, how Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Then Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, where God the Father says, I am the Lord. Then he speaks to his son in this text. It's an, a, a fascinating verse, Isaiah 42, 6. And the father says to the Messiah, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. <clears throat> I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. You hear that? A light for the nations. <clears throat> but especially like Isaiah 49, verse 6. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, we read, God says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant. And again, he's talking about his Messiah. He's speaking to the Messiah. It is too light a thing or too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations 
that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Don't you love that? God is, it's, it's intra-Trinitarian fellowship. And God is speaking to God, God the Father, speaking to God the Son, the Messiah. And he's saying to him, it's too small, it's too light that you simply save or redeem Israel. Or you'll be a light for the nations. And Luke is picking up on that in our text. Jesus is a sunrise to a spiritually dark world. And think about it. If right now you are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting in him alone for salvation from your sin, you are part of the fulfillment of this text. Yes? Right here is proof positive that God is faithful to his word. You are part of uh, that remnant that he has saved. Well, he's also a light for glory to your people, Israel. Uh, The people of Israel are God's chosen people, and they are the recipient of God's special affection and care. They are God's elect nation, and as, as such, he has lavished on them amazing privileges. In fact, keep your finger in Luke and turn to Romans chapter 9 for just a moment with me. In Romans chapter 9, we see uh, some astounding privileges that God gave to Israel <clears throat> as, as a people, as, as an ethnicity. In Romans chapter 9, verse 4. By the way, there are few sounds sweeter to a pastor than to hear the, that ruffle the pages, um, to know that you guys are digging into God's word. <clears throat> That matters far more than anything I ever say from up here. <clears throat> Romans 9.4. Paul says this, inspiration of the spirits, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. That's an amazing list of privileges that God bestowed on Israel. So think about that when it says, he is the adoption. Before them belong, and to them belong, the adoption. God had all the families of the earth before him, and he adopted Israel, and his grace, he adopts Abraham and with Abraham makes that unconditional covenant, promising to make from him this great nation and to bless all the families of the earth through that nation. Next he says, the glory. And I think that's referencing the Shekinah glory. Uh, You can remember the Shekinah glory when Israel's traveling through the wilderness and there's the cloud that goes before them, right? And at nighttime is a fire and it protects them. It's also that which protects them when when the Egyptian army is is breathing down their necks and God opens up uh, the Red Sea and the Shekinah glory steps in between Egypt and Israel and protects that great glory that also filled the temple and the tabernacle uh, with, with, with astounding brightness, astounding glory. So, so bright and so overwhelming that it says the people had to, had to exit out. They, they, they couldn't stand in his presence. That's his glory. Also the covenants, the covenants belong to him. So think of the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the new covenant. Also the giving of the law. Uh, for us as Christians, for whatever reason, we kind of have this sour taste in our mouth when we think about the Mosaic law. Uh, that's not fair to how scripture presents it, <clears throat> but we tend to have that. We tend to think very little of it and fail to appreciate the blessing that it was to Israel and even to us. And so we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8, where God says to Israel, what other nation is so great 
as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today. So God is saying, what other nation have I given this great privilege? I'm giving you my word and the great blessing that he gave to Israel that way. Also worship, uh, where it says that in Romans 9, that great privilege of Israel, again, probably referring to priesthood and sacrifices, that's a rich privilege. Uh, God did not do that for every other nation, did he? At least initially. Initially, he just singles out Israel and says, this is how I am to be worshipped. And he doesn't do that for the other nations. He gives them promises. Uh, notice it's plural, not just one, but many. God is the promise maker and the promise keeper, and of course the patriarchs. But the best part of that whole list uh, is when, again, you come down to verse 5 in Romans 9, where it says, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who's God over all, blessed forever, amen. By the way, you ever encounter someone who wants to argue with you that Jesus wasn't God? Take him to that verse right there. What's that say about Jesus? Romans chapter nine, verse five. He is the Christ who is God over all. That's pretty hard to argue with. Of course, people are pretty good at arguing. <laughs> but that's a very clear verse. That Jesus is God. Jesus is the glory of Israel. The greatest person ever born was a Jew, the son of David, the son of Abraham, born of Jewish parents, raised in a Jewish home, taught the Jewish law. Jesus is the glory of Israel. Now watch this. <clears throat> Jesus is the glory of Israel because he is the ultimate firstborn son. And Jesus is the glory of Israel because he is the Shekinah glory in the flesh. And Jesus is the glory of Israel because he is the fulfillment of all the covenant promises. And Jesus is the glory of Israel because he is the fulfillment of the law. He is the glory because the temple worship pointed to him. And he is the glory of Israel because all those promises find their yes and amen in him. Jesus is the glory of Israel in every way. Now tie those two truths together of like what it says in verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, for glory to the people of Israel. And the big upshot of that is this is a global gospel. This is the everyone gospel. This is for Jews and Gentiles. Uh, we should be in awe of this. In fact, I'm pretty willing to bet that if there were some people walking by Simeon, some Jewish people, and they heard Simeon say this, they might have got some pretty sour looks on their face. What was this old crazy guy saying? The gospel or, or, or light for the, the, the Gentiles? Remember what scripture says that uh, we were separated from Christ without hope, without God. This is a marvelous thing that God has done here. He's opened up salvation. He's opened the floodgates to all. To all peoples, all nations, all ethnicities, to his enemies. The gospel is for everyone. I praise God for that. I praise God for that. <clears throat> all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. All of us are unrighteous. All of us need a savior from sin. The greatest news in all the world is that God has provided a savior for every one of us. And hear this. Please hear this. 
that this Savior, this Messiah that God has provided, he is a Savior not for those who think that they have to earn it, but he is a Savior for those who understand that they cannot earn this salvation. I want to take a moment to camp there because this week I read a very alarming article. It was actually a few months old. <laughs> That's how far behind I am in my reading. That's bad. Uh, but, but this article was titled, Majority of American Christians Don't Believe the Gospel. It was conducted by the Cultural Research Center, and their survey concluded this, that 52% of Americans who describe themselves as Christians accept a, quote, works-oriented salvation, which means salvation is something they earn, not something that is freely given. 52% of American Christians believe that's the gospel, that somehow they have to earn it or work in a way that they might receive it. That tells me a couple things. That tells me, one, they need to open this up and start reading it. But that also tells me that there are a lot of Christians who aren't Christians at all. And they need to stop calling themselves Christians. And they need to start reading this and receive the free gift of salvation that is offered. They need to repent of works righteousness and believe in Christ who is our righteousness. Listen, the greatest news in all the world is not if you work hard, God will save you. That's, that's not a gospel. That's called trusting in yourself, not Jesus. Jesus didn't die for those who would, with all their might, work hard and do everything they can to, to kind of work their way up. No, he died for the powerless and the ungodly. The resounding theme of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is simply we are saved by faith and faith alone, not by works, lest anyone should boast. I would hate to go to heaven if salvation was by works, because it would not be heaven. It would be full of people boasting all the time about all the things that they did. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be hell, honestly. Heaven is heaven because Christ is there and he is our righteousness and he and he alone will be our boast because he did it all. Oh, that's the gospel. And that's why it's offered to everyone. It's not available to everyone if you have to earn it. It's available to everyone if it's freely given. And it's freely given. There is no other way. Salvation is not by works. It is by faith and by faith alone. I would ask you, is that the gospel you believe this morning? Is that the gospel? Is that the Savior you are trusting in this morning? The second reason to marvel, and it's a bit surprising, but a reason to marvel is that Jesus is the dividing point of humanity. <clears throat> And we see that from verses 33 and 35. So, so sadly, we just talked about the everyone gospel, but, but sadly, not everyone will believe. Sadly, many will reject him. 
listen to these verses in verse 33, uh, where it says, his father and mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them. I mean, honestly, you read it, it doesn't sound like much of a blessing, but, but it says he blessed them and, and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and then skip to the end of verse 35, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. <clears throat> I've received a lot of Christmas cards this 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 uh, Christmas season and over the years, and I've yet to find a Christmas card that has those verses on it. Have you? <laughs> we don't normally think of this side of Christmas, but here it is uh, right in our text. The overriding point of these verses is that with Jesus there's no neutrality, and that Jesus came first to divide. Let's unpack it just a, just a little bit here. Again, it says that Jesus will be appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And once again, that's imagery from Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15 says, The Messiah will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall be broken. They shall be snared and taken. That's very negative. Uh, this rock or this stone is spoken of more positively, this Messiah in Isaiah 28, 16, where it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in me will not be in haste, or your translation might say, will not be put to shame. So again, Luke is drawing from Isaiah, right? The imagery of Isaiah. And the New Testament, if you read through the New Testament, those references in Isaiah are constantly being picked up on. The point of it all is that Jesus will divide the nation of Israel in two. Some will hear the gospel message and respond in faith. In doing so, uh, they will believe that Jesus is truly the Messiah and they will rise to new life. Others will not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, and in doing so, they will fall and be broken. He is the rise and fall of many in Israel. The salvation or the destruction of many in Israel. Not just that, he's a sign that's opposed. You find that uh, at the end of verse 34, a sign that is opposed. The word sign is a, is a fascinating word. It means... A solid, clear manifestation. An unmistakable manifestation. No one can miss it. It's as obvious as, as the nose on your face. It's, it's the word that, if you read the, the, the Gospel of John, he loves this word and uses it all the time for the miracle is how we typically translate it. That's a sign. It's a miracle. A sign is something that unmistakably bears witness to the identity of Jesus, his presence, his power, his person. And yet, what does it say? E even though the sign will be so obvious, manifestly obvious, as obvious as the nose on, your, on our face, that the sign will be what? Opposed. Which is to say, spoken against. He will be denied. He will be rejected. And man, is that ever true when you read through the Gospels. And man, is that ever true today? You name the name of Christ, and we get opposed. Rejected. The cross has been a stumbling block and foolishness to many, and it will be until the Lord's return. 
Jesus is also the revealer of hearts. As it says at the end of verse 35, the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Uh, one, one commentator I read, Robertson, he wrote this, Jesus is the magnet of the ages. He draws some, he repels others. You ever do that as a kid? Maybe still do it as an adult. You take two magnets and try and push them together. Sometimes they, they jerk away, right? They repel. Sometimes they attract. That's the image that's here with Christ. The gospel reveals the true heart of all people. Jesus came to divide initially. That's kind of astonishing, isn't it? You don't always think of that. To some, Jesus and the gospel increases opposition and culpability. It hardens their hearts. To others, it humbles them. It softens them. To some, Jesus is the aroma of life. To others, he's the aroma of death. The question that needs to occupy your thought right now is, are you for him or are you against him? Right? That's got to be the burning question on your heart and your soul right now is, well, if, if there's no neutrality, if I'm either for or against, which one am I? Where am I on this? You can't, you can't straddle the fence. There's no middle ground. The gospel is drawing a line in the sand. Where do you stand with Christ? Are you a friend of God or an enemy of God? There's nothing cute about this story, is there? I, I personally can't stand all the, the romanticism and sentimentalism that surrounds this Christmas story. It's very, all too Christmassy and perfect and serene and silent night. <laughs> There's nothing cute or sentimental about this, is there? This is serious business. Where do you land? There's no neutrality. No neutrality. Point number three, the third reason to marvel. <clears throat> I'm so glad to end on these words. Christmas does not ignore your pain. I'm picking that up from verse 35 where Simeon says to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. We've all heard uh, Bing Crosby sing that song, have yourself a what? A merry little Christmas, let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. What a load of fooey, huh? <clears throat> For many of us, Christmas is anything but light and merry and without trouble. For many of us, Christmas is, is the exact opposite. Instead, for, for many of us, Christmas this, this year will be very, very difficult because there's that empty chair there where our loved one used to sit. For some of us, Christmas season will be very difficult this year, maybe because divorce has ripped your family apart. Maybe because... A loved one is making foolish decision after foolish decision. Maybe you have a prodigal son or daughter who has, who has ran away from home, ran away from Christ, and your heart is broken over that individual. You see, for many of us, Christmas is, is full of trouble and anxiety and fear and grief and hurt and pain, financial ruin, 
Maybe we've lost loved ones from COVID or we have ones right now who are, who are battling COVID or some other ache and pain or, or disease. And so because of those things, you realize that this, this time of the year, depression soars. Tie that in with it's already skyrocketing because of all the pandemic. Now Christmas rolls around and things get amplified. This is a rough time for many. Much anxiety, much, much stress. I don't care how much tinsel you throw on the Christmas tree or how much fruitcake you eat. And by the way, I don't understand why anyone eats that stuff. That stuff is disgusting. <laughs> but no matter how much of that you eat or how many songs you might sing or hear, the thought of being merry is often too much to bear. And what I want you to see this morning, what I want to resound in your heart, is that Christmas does not ignore your pain. Christmas is not all Christmassy and snow globe and beautiful and wonderful and all, all of that. Christmas comes in the midst of pain and hurt and sorrow. That's why Simeon says that to Mary about the sword piercing her soul. And the word sword there refers to a very large, broad, two-edged sword. Some, some people translate it as a spear. So it's a symbol of intense pain, piercing anguish. Of the anguish that she will experience as a mother of a Messiah who is rejected. Who is mocked and blasphemed, and ultimately hung on the cross, beaten and bleeding. That's a scene no mother wants to experience, yes? The pain must have been agonizing for Mary to stand there and see her son's body beaten and bloody and quivering on that cross. And I've, I've often wondered, and, and maybe you have too, I've, I've, I've often wondered how, how Mary could stand there and see her son and not shriek in terror or run fleeing from there. I've, I've often wondered about that, and the thought hit me this, this week as I was studying this text. I, I can only conclude that she was able to stand there and watch as long as she could until Christ said, Son, take, take your mother home. She was able to, to stand there that long because she had been graciously prepared right here through these words of Simeon. That day's coming, Mary. Your soul will be pierced. It will be anguish. It will be intense. That day's coming. Be prepared for that. God knew that day was coming. God is so good. He gives her the word she needs to sustain her soul through the deepest, darkest day of her life and her son's life. God is good, isn't he? Because of the prophetic words of Simeon, Mary is able to see her son's body quivering on that cross, and she can understand no, this isn't a mistake, right? She understands far from this being a mistake that this is for her salvation. She understands because God's word has prepared her that this is for the fall and rising of many. She understands on some level, I think, that though right now the grief is indescribable, that in days to come the joy will be indescribable because her son, who right now is enduring the wrath of God, for the sins of those who believe, that that wrath will turn to joy and blessing and hope. So I hope you're hearing this. If Christmas this morning and this, this week, this year is painful for you, think upon Mary, 
Remember the darkest moment of her life. Remember the sword stabbing deep into her soul. Remember this was the moment that God used to bring salvation and hope and joy to the world. Remember that just as God's word sustained her through this deep, dark time, it will sustain you. It will strengthen you. Remember that Christmas does not ignore your pain. Remember that the Bible recognizes Christmas as painful. It takes your pain seriously. Christmas reminds us that God knows your pain, he hears your cries, and he has done something about it. He has sent his son to deliver you. So please hear that whatever darkness you face this Christmas, it is not the final word in your life. Yes, there is real evil, there is real pain, there is real darkness, real sin in our world, but Jesus bore it all to overthrow it and to overcome it. So I'm just asking you to let your pain lead you to Jesus. Let your pain lead you to the word of God. If you are filled with grief and pain and sorrow this Christmas, don't seek comfort merely in memories and material things. That's nice, but that only goes so far. Seek your comfort, seek your hope, seek your strength in Christ, who alone can satisfy your heart and your longings and your desires. He knows your pain. Jesus did all that he did so that you would never be alone in your darkest day. And he did all that he did so he can overthrow your darkest days and turn it to joy. That's something to marvel about and to be in awe of and to be astonished by. So I'm going to invite the, the praise team up. And as they come up, I'm going to light uh, the, last, the last candle here. Uh, the last candle represents Christ. At the center of it all, and that's why only Dave is, is doing the closing song. Um, <clears throat> but we're thinking about things that cause us to marvel, the awe and the wonder and astonishment. And I hope this morning, hearing those three things, re reasons to marvel, reasons to be astonished, is because Jesus, it's a gospel for everyone, right? He's for everyone. It's, it's also because, like we just talked about, uh, Christmas... Uh, is for your pain. Christmas is here to overthrow that pain, to enter into that pain. And it's also because Jesus came to divide. Those are reasons to marvel. Those are things to be astonished about. So we're going to close with a song about being in awe of Jesus, the center of it all.